reading from Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, Join me and join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the Christ of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is in their belly and they glorify in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Erica, for reading all 100 verses that uh, was in the text here today. I want to start this morning by talking uh, about a, a story, talking about a person whose name uh, is Amanda. Amanda is 34 years old, mother of two, classically trained pianist uh, who taught at her local university, and she was also an addict. Her story starts uh, when she was 13, and she start, found uh, a means of, of obtaining alcohol. She had friends and, and found access to, to other drugs. 
And she found that in, in the, the midst of a life in which she was trying to balance an extraordinary need to keep her grades up and an extraordinary need to be excellent in her craft and the, and the need to, to keep up uh, with the demands of her teenage life, she kept going back to that well. And she could do it. It felt incredibly normal to her, in fact, because her friends also uh, were relying on, on the same substance to keep them going. It made sense to her because she could also continue to maintain the appearance that she wanted to maintain. She was a, a member of the National Honor Society. She uh, got her, her kudos for volunteering at the Veterans Hospital. She excelled in piano. She go, went to college. Um, her habits followed with her, but again, they seemed so normal at the time. She was just a girl who liked to party. She was just a girl who, who needed a release. But as she looks back in that period of her life, she reflects that, in fact, those drugs were the only thing I could think about. It was my main motivation in life, she says. But she was able, again, to balance graduating with honors and in both a, a bachelor, undergraduate and graduate degree. By 32, she was married. She had two kids. She taught at a, at a local university, as I mentioned before. And she also was driving two hours away each way because that's how far she had to go to find a doctor who would prescribe her the opioid that she felt she so desperately needed. Things were spinning out of control in her life, but she needed more than anything to maintain the rhythm, to keep up her appearance of being a good person and her, and her need, her driving need for a substance that would allow her to maintain the pace of life that she was on. It wasn't until she arrived at the brink of losing her children that she realized that she was sabotaging herself, that what she said was normal, what she said was a release the way that she uh, managed her life was something that she could not maintain. She couldn't have it both ways. She couldn't have the life with her family that she desired and the substance on the side. She had to choose. She had to choose to lose one of the two. I bring up uh, Amanda's story this morning because as we have walked through the story of Philippians, a story, the letter of Philippians, a letter that Paul writes uh, to a church that he had been uh, a, uh, instrumental in planting and starting, a church in Philippi. He comes to them and he says, look, there is something that you need to be really aware of. You live in a world that is going to tell you that you can gain joy, that you can gain happiness, that you can gain health and wholeness by adding, by adding uh, things to yourself, by uh, adding material wealth, right? By adding uh, the absence of conflict in relationships, that you can uh, obtain peace by adding money or power or comfort. 
But Paul, throughout the whole story of Philippians, is saying, no, 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 no. It's actually, it's actually the opposite. It's when you lose. It's when you lose that somehow in the mysterious way that Jesus works that you are able to gain. In fact, you heard it even in this section that Erica just read to us. Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things, everything in life, and I count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, Paul says that it is the loss of everything that led him to the place where he is now. Paul said he had to choose. He had to choose to change something in his life. He had to choose to lose. But choosing to change is hard. If you looked in the front of your bulletins uh, to non-Christian authors writing about change, uh, fascinating. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own soul. Notice he's not talking about an addict. He's not talking about um, a, a, a some person in a unique sort of way. He's talking about humanity. Or the second one, we'd rather be ruined than changed. Paul knows that what he is putting in front of us is daunting. And that's why I started our story today with the story of Amanda, because there's a lot that we can learn about change from our friends who have walked a road like Amanda does. In fact, we should probably consider them experts in such a field because for her to change felt like death. And yet she did. So as we um, come into this text, this particular portion of Philippians, Paul is saying that there is something in your life that is so dangerous that it is threatens to to destroy you, to, ups, to unseat your life. It threatens to rob you of everything that you uh, hold dear. And he's saying we have to make a choice. We have to make a choice to change away from that. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at what he lays in front of us, and I hope not tritely, I hope to, to, to use, look at some of the ways, even some of the verbiage that we find in the recovery community, because it is so helpful for us to understand what is in front of us. First is that you have to admit that you have a problem. Second, that you must make a choice to change. And third, that you must commit to a process of rehabilitation. That you must admit that you have a problem, that you must make a choice to change, and third, to commit to a process of rehabilitation. You have to admit that you have a problem. The first step is the hardest step, so they have to say. And it's the hardest step because it's the hardest to see. In fact, even as we I haven't even told you what he's talking about yet, but as, as, as we identify the problem that Paul is, is trying to put a light on, most likely everyone in this room is going to look at themselves and go, that's not me. There may be other people's problems. I may, I, okay, I can see conceptually where you're going with this, but this is not my problem. But Paul says that the consequences of that kind of vanity can be dire. 
Look at verses 18 and 19, the way he finishes. He says, for there are many. There are many people of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. In other words, they have found something that makes them feel good for a short amount of time, but that in the long run will rob them of that which is most important to them. Trade away the eternal glory and peace of being with Jesus for the momentary boost of getting their fix. So tell us, Paul, tell us, what is it that you find so dangerous? What is it that you see that is being passed around in our community that that could lead to such carnage in our life? And we expect something so sensational, so gritty, you know, some sort of sex, drunkenness, greed, violence, envy, something that would make the the headlines. But Paul, I believe, tells us here in chapter 3, he says, you know what it is? You know what will rot you from the inside out? Do you know what will consume you and unhinge your world? It's this. It's your desire to be a good person. Your desire to be a good person. It's so dangerous, in fact, that when we turn and he starts to describe them here in verse 2, you can hear him talking in, in the the angst and the frustration like you would talk about a, a, a drug dealer who has given drugs to your child, right? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, right? And, and this seems very opaque to us, right? Um, circumcision is not necessarily the, a hot-button topic in our world, but what he's referring to in, in the first century when, when Christians were wrestling with what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus began as, as a very legitimate uh, theological debate. We're told in, in Acts 15 of this council when they come together because there are people who, who said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is a theological debate because they were saying, look, if, if Christians are the people who are receiving the blessings that God has promised to the Jewish people, then surely they ought to do this kind of stuff. they got to become Jews first. They have to follow the rules. They have to obey um, the, the, the obligations of the promises that God gave the Jews. It began as a legitimate theological debate, but it has become something else in the community in Philippi. And elsewhere, as we find in the New Testament. Because the problem is not necessarily the theological debate. The problem, as Paul tells us, is that they have developed what he calls a confidence in the flesh. Or what I'm going to describe to you as the desire to be good people. You see, this theological commitment that these men and women held led them in, in, in a pattern of life that was utterly devastating. 
You see, when they said, look, you must become a Jew, you must do this really difficult and painful thing like uh, circumcision. You must adhere to this really difficult pattern of life like obeying these food laws. You must do all of these things in order to be saved, in order to belong in Jesus. There is something hidden in their words that works against them. You see, what they got out of that, the confidence that they got out of that is that they felt like they were good people, that they were good people who belonged to a group of good people. You see, in their position, they found a way to create a community where they had belonging, where people would accept them, where people would walk alongside them. In their unique position, as they try to tell other people, you must become like I am, they found a way of of finding value and worth because they could stand out. They could stand out. They could be the ones who really got it, the ones who really knew the way to be a, a good Christian. And so they turned and they went from community to community trying to rally people to their cause. Because what they thought they could gain out of it was fitting in and standing out. What they thought they could gain out of it was being known as being a good person. But it led to utter ruin. We don't live in the little niche world, the little niche community that those Jews did. But we, too, live our lives in order to be good people, don't we? You don't have to be particularly religious to do this, right? When you go through the drive through line at, at Wendy's, because you do go through the drive through line at Wendy's, Right, and they 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 always they always want you to throw in some extra money to you know help sick kids, right? And right, like you have to be a monster to not want to help sick kids, right? How do you how do you say no to that? Like, do you want to give money to sick kids? You're like, ah, well, who would I be if I say no to that? Right, you, you, uh, your kids, school sends home a thing, and they're like, "Hey, we're throwing this tedious, terrible, three-hour-long harvest fest. Don't you want to come, man? The uh, the the booth of throwing the ping-pong balls." And you go, "No, but but what kind of person would I be? What? How would I fit into this community if I don't give?" A win. I'm a good people person, and I want to belong to the community of the good people, so I'll do it. When you go to Kroger and you come out and the Girl Scouts are there selling cookies, you sacrificially give of yourself so that you could purchase those things, right? You want to be a good person. In a world torn apart by partisan divide and, and, and friends groups splitting and families splitting, you desperately want to, to conform your thoughts on the world to, to fit in and to stand out. To be a part of a community that will accept you and to be exceptional within that community. Now, if you're a church person, you know this so much. 
Because I don't care if you grew up in a, in a what's called a conservative church or what's called a, a liberal church. It doesn't matter uh, the, the denomination that you have experienced before. Once it comes to church, we, we all find ways of trying to be the good people, right? No matter what the theological tradition is, you're accepted if you believe the right things, and the farther, the deeper into the community you go, the list of the right things you must adhere to gets longer and longer and longer. It fits in. It doesn't matter if you uh, grew up in a church that is a mainline church or whether you grew up in a church uh, that is, is called evangelical. If you're a church person, you know that there is a desperate need to be the one of the people who, who gets it, who lives it who follows through. So if you were raised uh, or, or, or have been exposed to the evangelicals, you must present yourself, you must know yourself to be a person who takes the Bible seriously, unlike those nominal Christians over there. Or maybe you grew up in a church that uh, views itself to be more progressive in its slant. And you say, I have to be the kind of person who takes social justice and, 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 and who takes social change seriously. I can't be like those judgmental hypocrites over there. But in either case, what you are doing is you are saying, I am a good person. And I belong to a community of good people. And in the midst of a world that's in the midst, uh, in a theological world that's in the midst of an arms race where one wing of the church races towards fundamentalism and another races towards relativism, a whole lot of us want to race to the middle, right? To, to be the, the sane ones, to be the, the, the ones um, who are the most neutral, the most Switzerland of the group. It doesn't matter what the content is if your desire is for you to believe and to profess and to act out a thing because it allows you to fit in or because it allows you to stand out. You have become consumed with a desire, a goal of being a good person. And it feels so good. But it is not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Jesus. Uh, some of us, again, I, I apologize for all the, the um, parenthood illustrations here. It's just who I am. But, you know, we finished uh, Little League uh, soccer yesterday. And I don't know if you've uh, watched Little League soccer or basketball or football or really you can choose your sport. The same phenomenon happens every time, right? The kid somehow gums up with the ball. The ball pops out of, of the pack. And the kid takes the ball and they start dribbling towards the goal uh, that is in front of them. And it is wide open. They're streaking down the field. They're looking at their shadow, feeling so good about themselves because they are finally able to be what they've wanted to be this whole season long. They finally have been able to attain uh, the, the notoriety. The crowd is yelling their name. They feel like they have finally made it. But they're dribbling towards their own goal. 
They're dribbling towards their own goal. They think that the goal in front of them is theirs and that that's what they really want. But what they are driving for is not their glory. What they are headed towards is they're taking their lives in the direction of their own shame. Paul says the way of Jesus is the way behind you. He says the way of Jesus is to disown any kind of righteousness or goodness any sort of definition where you think yourself okay because you are good. And he says, trade that goal of goodness for the goal of Jesus. He says it in verse 9. He says, get rid of that righteousness that comes from yourself. The one that comes from the law, he says. But we could, we could easily translate that, right? That, that I must get rid of the righteousness that I manufacture in myself. The goodness I come up in myself by fitting into a community. Or by standing out from it. It really feels good to be known as a good person. But you are driv- driving your life away from that which is the only thing that matters. And so we don't just have to admit that we have a problem. We have a choice to make. We have a choice to make. I said uh, uh, in the beginning here that um, we would rather be ruined than changed. It's one thing to say really easily, and in fact, we yell it to the kids. We say, just turn around, go the other way, go back towards the goal. But do you know what's towards the other goal? All those defenders, all those obstacles, all the pain that was there. We'd rather be ruined than changed because change is really hard. Again, I think we can find help if we hear from our friends in the, the, the recovery spaces. right? Because they, you realize pretty quickly the goal is not just abstinence. To get rid of, of this one vice, this one drug that, that is dominating their world. In fact, there's a, frequently a pattern where they go from drug to drug to drug to drug, right? Because the drug doesn't matter. What, what, what needs to happen is a, is a change of life. There's a difference between abstinence and recovery, from abstinence and sobriety. Because with the presence of that drug, they have, um, they have oriented their entire life around the need of that fix, right? This is uh, from one resource. It says, look, if you have... Uh, If you are an addict, you have structured your whole life, the way you deal with stress, the, the, the people that you allow to be in your community, to be close to you, what you do in your free time. Your drug has defined the way of, of how you think about yourself. To give up that drug is not to give up some emotion. It is to lose everything for how you have constructed your life. Here's how one, uh, one person described her journey with uh, substance, with chemical dependence. She said, addiction causes you more than just a dependency on a substance. It causes you to live for nothing and no one but your pill. It becomes your focus, your life goal, your prize. You lose your sense of direction because it leads you to places you never thought you could end He says, you've constructed a whole life around the presence of this substance, and so to lose it looks like death. Paul says the same thing about his goodness. 
about his desire to be good. He said, I had built an entire life around being a good person. And it was leading me to utter ruin. Look at verse 4. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks that they're a good person, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was the best. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I stood out. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. He says, you want to get into an arms race about uh, if you want to orient your life around being a good person? I've been down that road. And what it led me to is it led me away from Jesus. And so he says <clears throat> that whatever gain I had, I consider a loss. He says, uh, my, my parents, my family, the history of, of my people, my lineage and my heritage, whatever goodness I felt because I was a part of those things, I have to, to disown that. Whatever accomplishments that I gained through years of schooling, through, through execution as, as a Pharisee, he said, I have to disown it. Whatever reputation he had earned through his life, he said, that is not for me, it is against me. It's driving me, it's pointing me towards the wrong goal. Because if you built your whole life around being a good person, then the things that you think are gains, the things you think are assets to your life are liabilities that are hiding Jesus from you. The things that you think make you a good person, the way that you can navigate a, a difficult situations, the way that other people think about you. You think those are to your goodness, but they are towards your ruin. The web of your life is deep. The web of your dependency on feeling like you are a good person is so deep that it controls the way that you respond, the way that you cope with the world. Because your identity as being a person who is a good person has shaped the way that you respond when you feel inadequate. It has shaped the way that you respond and the way that you heal when you feel unimportant. It has shaped the way that you respond and, and deal with the fact that when you feel directionless and aimless in life, and it's changed the way, it has, it has created the way that you respond when you feel unloved and unlovely. It's, it has shaped the way that you feel like you are okay in the world. And so when Paul invites us to, to, to consider all, everything a loss for the sake of Jesus, what he is saying is he is saying you have built a life around this idea that you are a good person. But when you hold that up next to Jesus, when you hold that up next to the, the, the kind of stability, the kind of hope, the kind of value that Jesus offers you, there is no comparison. Pick anything from the list and Jesus is better. In fact, take any, anything, the whole sum total of the list and Jesus is better. 
He says, all those coping strategies that you have developed, you can trade in for one solution, Jesus. But it's going to feel like death because you've come to rely and to depend on seeing yourself as a good person. You've come to rely and depend upon being a good person in the midst of a good people. To find yourself in Jesus is to feel like death, but in your death, you'll find him. Which brings us to our third point. A commitment to rehabilitation. See, this is another thing that's helpful when we look at our friends who have walked down a a road of of chemical dependency. Is that I don't I don't think that there is anyone uh, who's a practitioner in that field who who says, oh yeah, see here's how change happens. People see that sobriety is better than addiction, and then they they just change, right? No, nobody says, no counselor, no doctor says, oh, they, they go to inpatient or, or outpatient rehab, and then the problem's over. They're done with. They say, no, that, that the beauty and the joy and the gladness of sobriety has to be rediscovered over and over and over again in their life. And Paul says the same thing to us in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this. Or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul says that what I once, the energy that I, must, I once put into to persecuting the church, that I once put into being a good people person in the midst of a good people, he says I now apply that same energy to something else. When he, uh, the verb that's translated press on in our Bibles is, is frequently translated as persecute. As in earlier when he talked about persecuting the church. He says, I don't drive my life. I don't orient my life towards being a good person. He says, I drive my life towards something else. And that something else is being with Jesus. He says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He says, I orient my life, I, I, I pursue, I, I prosecute, I persecute this goal that I would know him and the power of his resurrection, that I would be with him, share in his sufferings. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul says, I will not tolerate, in fact, I cannot stand the sight of the things that I once thought made me a good person, towards the pursuit of being a good person, because I see that that steals me away from what really matters. And what matters is to be near Jesus. When I was a kid, uh, I was the third, I was the baby of the family. Um, some of you were fam- babies of, of your family, and, and I don't know if you had this experience, but for me, there was two glorious years. Two glorious years when both my older siblings uh, were out of the picture. We sent them away to school, right? So when I was three and when I was four, I had two glorious years in which they were out of the equation and I could be with my mom. It was mommy and me time. My mom loves to tell this story. I loved it. 
And I would do anything to be near her. And the reason that I know that I would be, do anything to be near her is because the memory that I have of that stage of childhood is, is yelling my mom's name and wandering around the house looking for her. I could not find her because she was hiding from me. I so much wanted nearness to her that she felt like she had to hide. My own mother had to hide from me because I wanted to be with her so much. When she scrubbed the floor, I was with her. When she cooked meals, I was with her. When she pulled weeds in the yard, I was with her. She would hide like on the other side of my brother's bed, hunker down like under a blanket. And sometimes she was praying. Sometimes she was reading. Once or twice, she may have been playing Tetris on my brother's Game Boy. But I wanted to be with her so very much because being with her meant that I was okay. It meant that I was safe. It meant that I was loved. Going and and proving that I was a good kid. Going and proving that I was good at building with Legos. Going and proving that I was was good at, at basketball meant nothing compared to being with my mom. And this would extend even... To, to the thing which feels the closest to death in a toddler's life, nap time. Mom would go and, and, and she would lay down on the bed and I would surely follow. I would follow and I, I remember being a kid and, and laying down next to my mom at nap time and I would try to like hook her arm. I'd try to like wrap, you know, put her in a leg lock or something because I knew that at some point she was going to get up and, and leave and go back to her chores and I desperately did not want her to do that because I wanted to be with her. I wanted to be with her so much that I was willing to, to face the horrors of nap time to be with her. I wish we had more time. I'm way late already to talk about what it means when Paul says that I may share in his sufferings, like sharing in Christ's sufferings is a good thing. But what I want us to hear for this, for our purposes today, is, is that Paul says that it is worth the pain of feeling like you are lost in the world. It is worth the, the alienation that you can feel from friends and families and peer groups that you desperately want to be accepted by if you can know Jesus, or rather, if you can be known by him. That the zeal that you put, the energy that you put into looking the right way, into being the right person, into believing the right things, he said, if you pursue being near Jesus you will experience life. He says we must forsake. We must forsake the pattern of life where we try to convince ourselves we are good people and we must instead choose to be near the one who is good. A friend who uh, earlier we read her, her quote on how addiction had shaped her life, she finished with this sentence, She said, the addiction brings you to a fork in the road where you must choose to either fear it or choose the hope of overcoming it. You must choose to submit your life into the the, the pattern of being good or you must choose that there is hope, that there is freedom, that there is life on the other side of letting go of that 
ambition. Paul says it this way. He says that there is one, one who, uh, who is a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, one who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, that there is one who has given up all things so that he could bring all things back together. He says we have a hope. His name is Jesus, and he's worth giving up whatever it is that you must lose to find him. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that we would be found in you, not because we are good, but because your goodness has found us. God, change our desires of our hearts that we long to be known as yours rather than to be known as good. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.